Good evening. Let's take a look at church history tonight. I love this study and I love the people that we go through on this. So uh, as always, tighten your belt and uh, let's plow through it. Uh, Papal schism. How many of you are ex-Catholics? Okay, so. Okay, recovering Catholic. Okay, good. Yeah, recovering Catholics. I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. Continue, so. Yeah, we're all recovering from something, trying to get back to just what the Bible says. Proto-Protestantism, the beginning of the murmurings of, of Protestantism here. So the problems for the papacy in the day uh, or in 1294, an aged Franciscan monk who loved the common people became a new pope. And that's a good thing. He entered Rome barefoot and took the name Celestine V. Uh, five months later, he resigned his papal position and returned to monastic life. He died in 1296. So it was very quick. Um, with all the garbage going on in the papacy, there are some good men that had this uh, position. They didn't. Uh, uh, they weren't part of the corrupt one. You would not believe. I mean, just to, to read through an exhaustive church history book and read the list and see how how they went through. One of one section of the of the uh, papal uh, time period is called the pornocracy. The pornocracy. Uh, you can imagine what that is. You wouldn't believe some of the story. I couldn't even. I didn't even want to present it. Um, it's just. It's too filthy. Uh, what went on? Uh, the power. What. Uh, the jockeying for positions and blah, blah, blah. So to, to come in and find this guy and one like this uh, is wonderful, especially on the heels of, of Innocent III, who was the most powerful pope that ever lived. Uh, pope Boniface VIII replaced Celestine uh, V and claimed power over all of Europe's kings and lords. So Celestine resigned in humility and perhaps one of the worst that ever, Boniface VIII, uh, replaced him. And he claimed power over all of Europe's kings and lords. Uh, so if you're a king, if you're in power, I'm the Pope now, and you will do as I say. When England and France were at war, both were taxing the churches in order to fund their ability to fight the war. But Pope Boniface VIII um, ordered the church officials not to pay the tax. So look at that. So you've got England and France are at war, and in order to fund the war, they start taxing the churches. Boniface says, don't do it. So... Uh, the kings are not necessarily going to be too happy about this. The king of England actually just ignored the pope. The king of France rebelled against him. Boniface then wrote a papal bull, which is a, a decree against the king of France. And he said this, listen, listen, just, you, you'll get it as I read it. Listen, beloved son, he's writing to the king of France. Listen, beloved son, to the precepts of a father and pay heed to the teaching of a master who holds the place on earth of him who alone is Lord and master. That's how I introduce everything I'm going to say to my wife. <laughs> he says, he says, yeah, yeah she, she doesn't listen to that. You have entered the Catholic Church in which the, primar- the primacy is known to belong to the successor of Peter, having the keys of the kingdom of heaven. For although our merits are insufficient, God has set us over kings and kingdoms and has imposed on us the apostolic service to root up and to pull down. Wherefore, dearest son, that right there is just so belittling. Let no one persuade you that you have no superior or that you are not subject to the head of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. For he is a fool who so thinks and is outside the fold of the good shepherd. 
Finally, the Pope wrote one of his famous bulls of all time called the Unum Sanctum, in which he says, Therefore, we declare, define, state, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. There it is, Boniface VIII. King Philip diverted part of his army and invaded Italy, which is where the Pope was, captured the Pope, and moved the papacy to France. Now that is a swift move. How dare you tell me that? He invades France from, invades Italy from France, captures the Pope, brings him back so that he could control the Pope. He wasn't afraid of any decree or interdict by the Pope. Uh, he died one month later in 1303. And Dante, if you ever had to read Inferno, he placed Boniface in the hottest circle of hell in his famous Inferno. How many of you, how many of you had to read, number one, or number two, actually did read when you had to read it? Yeah. It's called hell. What's that? The cliff notes do not count. I know this firsthand because I read them and failed the test. So, uh, yeah, yeah. so no, they, they must not have been any good. But that's where Dante placed him. He was as wicked. I was reading some stuff on him today, and uh, um, there's all kinds of, of strange stuff about him worshiping the devil and the like. So uh, anyway, had quite a view of himself. About 70 years later, in 1377, Pope Gregory the Eleventh attempted to move the papacy back to Rome because now it's in France. The papacy, think about this. It was in Rome, Italy. It's been moved to Avion, France. That's where the papacy is. And Pope Gregory the Eleventh attempted to move back to Rome, but at that time the city had become deteriorated <clears throat> and lacked the luxuries enjoyed in Avion. Uh, Gregory died shortly thereafter. So would the real pope stand up? Pope Gregory the Eleventh died in 1378. The cardinals then appointed an Italian pope to appease the citizens of Rome because it's come back and now they want it to go back. If you're a pope and you're part of the school of cardinals, the college of cardinals, and you come back to Rome, Avion, France was beautiful and wonderful. It was like a, a beach house resort. Now you come back to an old shack because it's deteriorated in Rome. They wanted to go back to Avion, France. Well, the people of, of Italy didn't want the pope to move again. <laughs> but... What they're going to do is uh, Gregory's going to appoint a pope there in, in uh, Italy and then skedaddle. So when their new Italian pope, who was Urban VI, refused to do what the cardinals wanted, they replaced him with a bishop from France. And so you can just see this is silliness all the way around. In France, the cardinals elected a new pope, Clement VII, the supposed true pope, claiming the election in Rome of Urban VI was void because they were under duress. The people of Italy were forcing us to elect him, so we did, and that must be not God's will. When Urban VI, who was in Italy, refused to be replaced by Clement VII, the two popes just excommunicated each other. This is called the papal schism. Is it schism or schism? Schism? I really don't like that word. Schism. Schism. I'll say schism if I can. I can remember. With two popes claiming to have God's authority, and with Catholics believing that the Pope speaks for God, total confusion ensued. With Catholics believing salvation comes from the Mass and baptism, no one knew which church was legitimate. Uh, you've got one saying one thing and another saying another thing, which people today are confused. You know, do I believe the Baptists? Do I believe the, the Methodists or the Catholics or the Presbyterians? Politics is the same way, right? What do you believe? And, and when you get down to all this, really very few people had a Bible to go to. We're talking about a time when most people were illiterate at, at best. Uh, 
And all they did was listen to what their, their people, the, the, the popes or their, their priests told them. And people today do that. You know, it's amazing how few people today who call themselves Christians have ever read the Bible and have any intention of reading the Bible. And so you wonder, why do you believe what you believe? Well, people believe what they believe because someone that they respect told them to believe it. Or what they believe feels right to them. Well, I know this is right. It just feels right. Don't ever go on what feels right. If it feels right, it's probably wrong. Right? Have you had that experience yet over the course of your adult life? If it feels just just right, it's probably wrong. Because our wills are completely contrary to the holy God that we serve's will. Well, so came to believe, some came to believe that a church council uh, trumps a pope. So in order to outrank the, the, the pope, you come up with a church council. So at the Council of Pisa in 1409, the church tried to depose the two popes, declaring a third man to be the legitimate pope. All this did was create three popes, each one uh, excommunicating the other. At the Council of Constance from 1414 to 1418, it succeeded at deposing all three and setting up one so-called legitimate pope, none of which wanted to vacate their, their seat, but uh, technically there were four, but uh, really didn't happen that way. So now there's just one, and this council is going to establish it. So even the Catholic Church, they believe that from the, uh, not Peter's, uh, the Apostle Peter, you know, you would think that there's this line of people that he had a child, and they had a child, and they had a child. It's not that at all. It was always just someone in the line of Peter. How do you how do you determine who's in the line of Peter? I mean, do you have to be as good a man as Peter? Because you look at Peter's life, it didn't look that good to me. Um, it looks like every one of our leaders in the in the Bible, if we want to try to emulate them, we're in a lot of trouble. Um, but this is what it's come to. So the problems of the papacy, for more than 70 years, the popes lived it up in Avignon, France. 70 years, that's where it was. This dark period of corruption would later become known as the Babylonian captivity of the Roman Catholic Church because it lasted 70 years like Israel's exile in Babylon from 605 to B.C. Uh, to uh, 70 years later, around 535 B.C. This put the papal authority in question, forever weakening the papacy. So it reached its zenith under Innocent III, and then you had some uh, a very Celestine V. You had a very humble pope, and then it just deteriorated under Boniface and the, the rest. Now, in the midst of all this, you've got the Black Plague, the bubonic plague. I was going to have a picture of the plague, but I didn't want to gross you out. I was going to show the bumps on the skin, but that just I didn't want to look at that. So the Black Plague comes around. It struck Europe in 1347, uh, believed to be from fleas on rats. No one knew at the time. Um, and this comes from worldwide trade. You know, you put a bunch of boxes on a, on a ship. It comes across, and, and there's rats on it. People then didn't even know about bacteria. No one knew to wash their hands in these days. You didn't know that a flea jumping on you or that rat was filthy, carrying diseases. No one knew this. But there was one group of people that did know. They may not have known why, but they knew to to wash their hands. Who was that group? Jews. You can see the gospel of God's salvation in the books like Leviticus and Exodus. God protecting his people. The plague took approximately 23 million lives in Europe and Asia Minor. So, you know, I, I've, I've heard different numbers throughout the years uh, or percentages uh, that it's a third of Europe. I was reading the other day, someone says, no, it's a half of Europe. It's like every year that we live, somebody decides, no, 
No, it was more than that. You know, how do we know? How do we know? But uh, upwards of a third of Europe, imagine, a third of the United States being taken by death. Um, size of Texas. In Constantinople alone, 88% of the population perished. At one point, 800 people were dying every day in the city of Paris alone. The Jews were blamed and greatly persecuted for this because they seemed immune to it. Which is great. These are, these are people that knew to wash. They didn't eat certain unclean animals. So if the Jews are not getting sick and dying, then they must be the cause of the bubonic plague. Part of their persecution uh, was just, I wouldn't say it began then, it was just added to their, um, to their lives at this point during the plague. Once the plague subsided, the papacy continued to struggle. It was then that the rumblings of reform began to be heard. Um, and you'll see various, when you read church history at this point, various people pop up and they are uh, what we call mystics. Um, they weren't, you know, I read the Bible, you read the Bible, I, I, I read a paragraph, I tell you what it says, what it means, maybe some history behind it and how we apply it. That's how we look at the Bible. Mystics went beyond that. Um, and it's not always a bad thing. In fact, sometimes it's a very good thing. But uh, when you get you become too mystical with the Bible, uh, you can just make it say anything you want. Or you, you're saying, okay, I know it says this, but we're moving beyond that. Uh, you know, as I said, the example I used in the past was Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Uh, the road to Emmaus. Jesus walks to Emmaus. Well, what does that mean? It means that on the day that Jesus resurrected, he took a walk to three and a half miles away to a city called Emmaus. What else could that mean? Well, people have gone through through the years and said, you know, what is your walk to Emmaus? And And then... It can't just mean, no, God wouldn't just put in there that Jesus was walking to Emmaus. That must mean something else. So, you know, you get some down-home, uh, snaggletooth preacher like me who just says, here's what it says, here's what it means. Uh, now go home and may the Lord bless you. Uh, to a preacher that says, you know what, we're going to move beyond that. Here's what it says, here's what it means, but here's what it really means. Well, that preacher becomes special in the eyes of people who don't know any better. Wow, he's got wonderful thoughts, or she has amazing thoughts, or a pastor that had a vision. People love this stuff. They love it when a pastor has a vision, a dream. Uh, how many of you remember Dusty Kemp here in Houston? Um, one of the churches down, down in Houston, I believe it was off I-10, the Bread of Life Church. And back on K- KSBJ, back in the 80s, you know, wake up to it, that was back when I could stomach it. Is he still living? I don't know. I don't know. Did he? Well, back in the 80s, he was on KSBJ, you wake up in the morning, and, and he would always introduce, he would get his little, little section there, and he goes, well, I'm Pastor Dusty Kemp, and I've got some fresh revelation for you today. Fresh revelation, huh? Fresh. I mean, what is fresh revelation? Did you just read it for the first time? <laughs> or, or, because the revelation I have in my Bible is old, ancient, and stale. But absolutely life-transforming. But people came to that. They love that. He's had a vision. uh, Fresh. Something new. Something special. Not that old stuff. So you see these mystics come along. They've been around for a while. Thomas Akempis was one of the good ones. Uh, In the late 1300s, 1400s, the common life movement arose among Christians in Holland. The brothers of the communion life blended scholarship with deep, even mystical devotion. The most famous brother of the common life was Thomas Akempis, 
uh, who authored a book that you can still get called The Imitation of Christ. Uh, good book, great book, great man. Um, still out there. It doesn't say anything um, more than, than what's written today. It's just a man who was following Christ. Um, even, he says, even if you know the whole Bible by heart and the sayings of the philosophers, what does it profit you unless you also love God? Truly, humble farmers who serve God are greater than proud philosophers who neglect their need for God. Beautiful. Not so mystical, uh, but, but a man who, who's saying, look, let's just get beyond what the words are in the Bible. Let's know the God behind it. This oftentimes was seen as mystical. And then a woman like, like Joan of Arc. How many of you know a whole lot about Joan of Arc? Uh, she died in 14... She died. You knew that, right, Gary? Died in 1431. She was a teenager, and she was a, a military general. And it was, no one really quite knows why. People were, uh, the king was taken by her. Uh, not by her beauty or anything, but she had visions that were coming true. And he was going, all right, you want to lead the army? Lead the army. It can't hurt. During the Hundred Years' War, 1337 to 1453, I know that's more than 100 years, but that's what it's called, the Hundred Years' War. A French teenager named Joan uh, believed that she experienced a mystical vision. Her, her name is Dark. Jean Dark is really the way I hear people pronouncing it, which is her father's surname. His name was Jacques Dark. Uh, from St. Catherine, she believes, and St. Margaret, and the Archangel Michael, ordering her to lead the Dauphin's troops to break the siege of Orleans in order to have Charles VII crowned at Rheims. Now, the Dauphin, if you don't know, is the, uh, it's the French name for the king's son, the heir to the throne. And she wanted Charles VII to reign, and she got a visitation from these two saints, St. Saint Catherine and St. Margaret, which I always wonder when she got them. How do you know? Did she say, ah, I recognize you from the picture I have of you, St. Catherine? And there were no pictures. She didn't know, but also from the Archangel Michael. You know, I can only imagine when you get these visions, you have to say, and who are you guys? <laughs> And let me introduce myself. I'm St. Catherine. I'm St. Margaret. Oh, and this guy over here, this is Mike the Archangel. We call him Mike Ark. <laughs> Similar to you, Joan of Ark. No, she was not Noah's husband. It took some of you a little bit of time to think about that. Well, and, and th I don't know how much history you know. I don't know a whole lot of history from it. I've watched uh, some historical videos to bring myself up on Joan of Ark. Um, but she's just fitting into this time of, of mystery. She's having visions. Uh, interestingly, her visions apparently came to pass. Uh, she united the French army and led them in victory across France, convincing the French troops not to fight on Sunday, the Lord's Day. No one really knows if she had these visions, but the visions she was having, at least as she was expressing them to the, to the nobility, were coming to pass. And they started thinking, this girl might have something. Uh, later, she was captured by the English, and uh, she was essentially betrayed by her, her French brethren. Uh, she was burned alive as a heretic. She was burned three times until all of her, her, body was, her entire body was burned to ash, and they threw her in the river in 1431. Her charges were claiming to hear from heaven and hearing from heaven in French and for dressing like a man. She had to, they dressed her in, in body armor to look like a, a male in battle. And when she, came, when she wasn't fighting, she continued to dress like a man. And uh, since Deuteronomy uh, claims that a, a woman cannot dress like a man, this was part of her heresy, uh, they killed her. She was young, and uh, she's a very mysterious figure. But she fits into the category of these mystics, seeing things. Uh, no backup from the Bible, leading revolutions, not spiritual revolutions. I should say warlike revolutions. 
We get to these next two guys. These are my favorites. Uh, absolutely my favorites up to the Reformation. John Wycliffe, 1320-1384. He is called the morning star of the Reformation because he is essentially the reformer uh, before there was a Reformation. He was a priest at Oxford and professor here at Merton College. Um, I've actually been able to walk around that place in Oxford. And uh, uh, I just love walking around the place the day I was there, knowing that that's where Wycliffe taught. It was pretty, pretty. He, he talked during a very, I would say, a very dark, terrible age, as I've read, uh, a day when there wasn't a whole lot happening. But he was this bright morning star, as historians call him. Recall that in the 1200s, King John of England had agreed to pay an annual tax to the Pope. And England was still paying that tax when the Pope was in France. Remember, John Wycliffe is in, he lives in England. Uh, London and Oxford are 45 minutes from each other. He's in Oxford, and England is supposed to be paying this fee to the Pope. Wycliffe believed and taught that England should not pay the annual tax to the Pope promised by King John. So he's essentially saying, we're done with this. This makes no sense. Remember, we moved out. I told you about a couple weeks ago, we talked about scholastics, the Bible, or I should say people's minds are moving from, from not knowing anything to a philosophical way of thinking, as we went through in some of the, the gentlemen I told you about, Peter Abelard and St. Anselm um, and Thomas Aquinas, uh, uh, Occam comes in, and you've got these guys that are, that are growing. These universities are now replaced, in large part, the monasteries, and people like John Wycliffe comes up. These are intelligent men, God-fearing, intelligent men. And so he's telling people, look, the Pope is no good. In fact, he calls him the Antichrist. No more paying that fee. Or we're going to go on God's word. Then the papal schism occurred, schism occurred, as I said earlier. Uh, and so Wycliffe fits right in the middle of that, and the confusion that ensued allowed Wycliffe to continue his attempted reformation. In other words, the Catholic Church couldn't do a whole lot with Wycliffe. They're trying to all figure out who's the Pope at the time. And John Wycliffe was able to kind of slide right through the middle of them and bring about a, a subtle reformation. In this atmosphere of confusion about the Popes, Wycliffe said that the authority of the Church was, number one, not the Pope. That's a major um, announcement to make in that day and age. It was not the church council or not a church council, which some were saying councils overrule popes. He was saying it's neither one of those, but it is the Bible. The problem was in Wycliffe's day, no one had a Bible. People didn't have a Bible. I mean, imagine what we, we can mass produce things today so quickly uh, from, I mean, there's no industrial revolution back then. There's, there's no copying machine. The, the printing press hasn't even been developed. Uh, and so in a day where, where this man comes out and says, is the Bible, okay, that's like coming out in the 1800s saying, oh, one day we're going to have frozen foods. You, know, you ever watch uh, uh, the food that built America on the History Channel? Great, great show because it's talking about those that, that dreamed of food that would one day be frozen. And you could pack it. No one had that back then. So the only way to have frozen food was to also invent uh, refrigeration. It could have your eyes. So you've got to make that. You've got to find someone to fund it and then make the food that goes into it and then get people to buy it all. So this is essentially the same thing with the Bible. It's, no one knows the Bible. We've got to get it out there. People have to learn to read. And then we have to teach them what it says and help them make the shift from believing that the Pope is, is Christ on earth to just listening to the Bible. Well, we've got the same problem today. To try to get people who are entrenched and, and brainwashed with the Pope being the representation of Christ on earth, just getting people today to understand, no, we read the Bible, what God's Word says. The apostles wrote that. 
it's difficult enough. So Wycliffe had, took a, a great undertaking. He said that the papal schism was a blessing to the church because it revealed the corruption of the papacy. Of course, the popes are not liking this a whole lot, and he's right there in the midst of it in Oxford, England. Wycliffe staunchly proclaimed the pope is the Antichrist. <laughs> Nothing uh, subtle about Wycliffe. Uh, he staunchly proclaimed that transubstantiation is not valid. Transubstantiation, if you don't know, is the Catholic belief that you go in and when you partake of the bread, you eat a, a piece of unleavened bread, it goes into your mouth, and it becomes the body of Jesus within you. And as it becomes the body of Jesus within you, your sins are forgiven that day. That's called the Mass. So if you know you're a sinner, a good Catholic goes to Mass every day because they know they're sinners. The priest drinks the blood, drinks the wine, which becomes the blood, and so that combines together the priest and you, and your sins are forgiven. Got to have a priest. Can't do it without the blood. And yet the Bible says there is, what, one mediator between God and man? Your local priest at the local Catholic church. The man Christ Jesus. So he's speaking out against this. People don't know any better. What do you mean, John? What do you mean? I, I'm going to take this, this bread. It's going to become Jesus' body in me, and I'm going to be forgiven, and the priest is going to drink the wine, and that's going to forgive my sins. You're saying not to do it? What a huge leap of faith for anyone who's thinking, uh, okay, I'm going with Wycliffe. If you're going to go with Wycliffe, you're abandoning perhaps your soul, if that's what you think was right. And he said that Scripture alone is the authority for, script, for Christians. Scripture alone. This is, this is your modern Bible church preacher right here. Wish he could have lived in our day. Uh, he cr- translated uh, from the Latin Vulgate, not from the Greek. He had the Latin Vulgate. That's what people had. And here's, I won't even read it, but here's, here's, here's a good view of, of his English. How about that? Uh, wise, I, I am very vine, and my uh, favor is an is an earth tillier each branch in me that not bring fruit in me he shall do away it and blah 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 old english i mean he's this is this is great english for his time it's not like he didn't know what he was doing if you look at that you're going uh, my three-year-old wrote that uh, yeah really went to oxford <laughs> no no respect for oxford anymore, right no this is this is good english Back in those days, he's taking the, the Latin Vulgate and he's writing out a New Testament. That's all he did. He wrote out a New Testament. It's all you could do from the Latin Vulgate and that was the English Bible. This was complete heresy and this was punishable by death. He says this, God has shown love to his church by this division of the papacy which has recently occurred. Some men consider that the church prayers to Christ and his mother for grace to be given have been answered in this crushing of the head of the Antichrist. Now the Antichrist falsity has been exposed. For they consider that the Pope is the Antichrist on earth, since his words and deeds are contrary to Christ. Christ was poor, but the Antichrist is against this, and is covetous and dreams up shrewd schemes by which he may become rich. Christ was a meek man, but the Pope is the most proud of men, and makes kings kiss his feet. Christ loved his flock so much that he gave his life for them. But the Pope loves the worship of men so much that he has caused the death of thousands of men. It's hard to find a problem with that. He says, there is a heresy that deceives many simple men. It is said that if the Pope determines anything, then it is a truth and should be believed. But is each Pope better with God than Peter? He erred often and sinned many times even after he had received the Holy Spirit. Christ even called him Satan. 
Peter denied Christ at the mere threat of a woman and erred in his foul sin. Also, he erred when he would not deal with the Gentiles. And Paul tells us this. Those heretics who pretend that the lady need not know God's law, but that the knowledge which priests have imparted to them by word of mouth is sufficient, do not deserve to be listened to. For the Holy Scripture is the faith of the church, and the more widely his true meaning becomes known, the better it will be. Therefore, since the lady should know the faith, it should be taught in whatever language is most easily comprehended. Therefore, we put it in English. One Catholic said of Wycliffe, he said, Christ gave the gospel to the clergy and learned of the church that they might give it to the laity. But this master, John Wycliffe, translated the gospel from the Latin into the Anglican language. And Wycliffe, by thus translating the Bible, made it the property of the masses and common to all and more open to the lady and even women who are able to read, heaven forbid, than formerly it had been to the scholarly and most learned of the clergy. So the gospel pearl is thrown before swine and trodden underfoot. And that which used to be so dear to both clergy and lady has become a joke. Now, mind you, many Catholics, I dare say most good Catholics, believe this today. That the Bible in the hands of someone other than their clergy is, is, the, is God's word thrown to swine. There it is. Wickless followers were called lollards. It's from the Middle Dutch lollert or mumbler. They went about preaching like the poor preachers we looked at last week, the mendicants. Uh, those poor preachers. That's what, that's what people say about anyone who's preaching the word of God. Ah, uh, those poor mumblers. They don't know anything. Those Bible church people. I learned from a, a large Baptist church, a large Baptist church in our city. I won't tell you which one. There's a handful of them. There's a first and there's a second. And uh, <laughs> apparently the pastorate, I believe it's the second Calls every church that's not big, as big as his uh, holy huddles. Holy huddles. So we're nothing but a holy huddle. That's how they belittle the smaller church. You've got to be a big, huge church to be somebody. Uh, and that's what they've always been called. A little holy huddle. Mumblers who go out and do their good their little thing in their little churches. You've got little cars. They go beep, beep, beep. John Wycliffe led, led this, and these Lollards, these, these are your heroes. These are your heroes. These are people, and again, these Lollards are people that, that believed not just this Oxford priest, but through the Spirit of God, repented and turned away from what the church had always said with the Lord's Supper, or the, or the, 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 the Eucharist, the transubstantiation. They had um, the wherewithal, the fortitude to say, that's wrong. Here's what the Bible says. Wycliffe showed us from God's Word. We're turning from it. That's boldness. The Roman Catholic Church would have burned Wycliffe at the stake if they could have, but he died before they could do their worst. And to get back at him, I dug up his bones and burned him anyway. I'm sure John, I'm sure John was really upset with that. What are y'all doing? I'm already dead. And they threw him in the river. And one preacher of mine from the past said, the, I forgot the river they, th- they th- put his, his, uh, his ashes into. But he said that river just, it, it's a metaphor for, for the, what, the, what happened with the church there. Those ashes spread out to the world and became what we know as the Reformation. Not just his ashes, but his message. The Bible alone. John Huss. Looks like Jan Huss, but it's Jan. Uh, you'll see it sometimes. John Huss or John H- H-U-S-S. The first time I read about Jan Huss uh, was about 20 years ago. I remember reading the Christian History magazine on him. And I wept. Um, this man, uh, just uh, one of the 
the way he was treated. I would love to meet Jan Hus. He's one of my favorites. Seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Teach the truth. Love the truth. Abide by the truth and defend the truth unto death. And that's what he did. That's what this man did. He, so he would be the second batter after the, the great morning star of John Wycliffe. He was a professor at the University of Prague uh, who was influenced by Wycliffe's views. Um, he was, by the way, Hus means the goose. He was the first goose. So Top Gun, sorry, it was Jan Hus. He translated the Bible into the Czech language, as Wycliffe had translated into the Anglican language or English. In Hus's day, the church had a lot of hope in conciliarism, which is a council, a council that overrules and overpowers the Pope, the belief that a council has more authority than the Pope. When the Council of Constance uh, was called to solve the papal schism in 1414, it also sought to stop the Hussite heresy, the movement created by Jan Hus's preaching. And he was just another Bible teacher. He believed that the Bible was God's word. It's about 100 years uh, from, or uh, not quite 100 years uh, from, because Wycliffe died in 1380, I believe it was 1382. Uh, and so Hus was shortly after that, but over in Czechoslovakia, former Czechoslovakia in the Czech Republic. So not only are they going to try to deal with the papal schism, we're going to get this Hussite heresy. The Catholics, along with the emperor Sigismund, invited Hus to come to Constance to defend his views. He wisely declined. Uh, the emperor then promised him safe passage home if he were to be found a heretic. So Hus decided to attend. So what do you think is going to happen? This is, this is what is just gut-wrenching uh, as the story progresses with John. At this council, this church council, over 36,000 extra people moved into the little town of Constance. That's the building, by the way, where they met. The scene was more of a carnival atmosphere than a holy convocation. Reports say that there were 33 cardinals, 5 patriarchs, 47 archbishops, 145 bishops, 217 doctors of theology, 83 kings and princes, 38 dukes, 1,500 knights, 1,700 buglers, not burgers, buglers, fiddlers and players of other musical instruments, and 700 prostitutes. Additional prostitutes had to be sent for. How about that? Yes, it's part of the bill. But this, no, this is after the pornocracy. Yeah, this is the same idea. Hus wrote, the council is a scene of foulness, for it is a common saying among the Swiss that a generation will not suffice to cleanse Constance from the sins which the council has committed in this city, in his letters. When Hus arrived, as soon as he arrived, they threw him in jail as a heretic, where he remained without books or Bible, suffering from fever and vomiting for several months. That's how long they left him in there. The council met for four years, um, almost, I believe it's four years. Pope John Twenty-Third presided, but the council asked him and the two other popes to resign. John refused and left. This is part of that papal schism. John, I'm not going to resign, and he left. The council tried him anyway when his, in his absence, accusing him of unchastity, lying, disobedient to parents, sodomy, adultery, denying the future life, violating nuns, and stealing the head of John the Baptist from the nuns of St. Sylvester. <laughs> it's not one you thought anyone would ever be con convicted of, right? After his capture, he and Hus shared a cell. So he's one of the popes they're trying to get rid of. Uh, they're trying to deal with the papal schism, trying to deal with the Hussite heresy, and they shared a cell. The charges against Hus were as follows holding that Christ was in the bread only in the same way that the soul is in the body. 
saying that John Wycliffe had been a good Christian, saying that salvation was not dependent on the Pope. You and I would say the same thing because we believe this. In private interviews with bishops, Hus said that he was willing to revoke his beliefs if they could be proved untrue by Scripture and a good argument. He would revoke nothing that was not so proven. This is the same thing that Martin Luther would say a hundred years later when they captured him. One of the doctors of the council told him that if the council affirmed that he had only one eye, he ought to accept the verdict. Now think about that. He's saying, look, I'll, I'll, I'll renounce what, you're, what I've said if you can prove to me by Scripture it's wrong. And the, and the, the doctor says, look, if we told you you had only one eye, you have only one eye. Do what we say to do or die. And there are some people in the world who will fold trying to save their lives. But the reason we're talking about this man, and that's why we talk about men like this and women like this, Joan of Arc as well, is because they don't. One of the bishops asked Hus if he thought himself wiser than the whole council. He replied that he was not, but for him to retract, must be pers- he must be persuaded by the errors from Scripture, of his errors by Scripture. At 6 a.m. on Saturday, July the 6th, which was his 42nd birthday, he was taken to the cathedral. The council made him wait outside until they had conducted a mass. Isn't that just the, uh, the epitome of, uh, of hypocrisy? When he was admitted to the cathedral... He was not allowed to speak, but had to listen to the sentence read against him. One of the bishops preached a sermon on Romans 6, 6, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Wow, they're so biblical. Watch out when people quote the Bible. I mean, just because someone says that they believe in God or they quote the Bible, that doesn't mean anything. Um, I, someone told me it was actually a, a close family member, which I will not reveal who it was, but she, she always tells me, yeah, I go, they preach just like you. This is where I go. They preach just like you. So I'll go in there and watch. And I'm going, they don't preach anything like me. And not that I'm the standard for preaching, but when you read one Bible verse or have no Bible verses and walk around, that's nothing like what we do. Nothing. I'm always insulted by that. It's not how I preach. Oh, yeah, he's just like you, Lance. If he's just like me, why don't you come to this church? Because I hate you. (laughs) I mean, that's the implied answer. Then they read the charges against us. The Holy Council, having God only before its eyes, of course, condemns Jan Hus to have been and to be a true and real and open heretic, the disciple not of Jesus, but of John Wycliffe. Having been promised by the Emperor Sigismund a safe passage home, having been promised by Emperor Sigismund a safe passage home should, be found, should he be found a heretic, Hus reminded the emperor of his promise. By the way, Sigizzi, Sigizzi, you remember that promise you gave? Even if I'm found a heretic, I could go home safely? Sigismund is reported to have said nothing, but to have turned red. Hus called him out in front of everyone. Just lied. They led Hus out by the city, past a bonfire that was consuming his books to the place of execution, called the devil's place. Hus knelt and prayed while weeping. His hands were tied behind his back. His neck fastened to a post. What a good man. Hus was offered a chance to live if he recanted. He refused and said, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. And one of the cardinals offered a chance for him to confess to a priest. He refused, saying, There is no need. I have no mortal sin. They lit the fire as it rose. He sang, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy on me. Isn't that great? That's why we read about him. 
read about <clears throat> excuse me men women people who know how to die and for die for the right reasons and who have drawn a line in the sand metaphorically speaking that I will not cross this um, one lady I was talking to today she was texting me she said I'm so glad we live in this age I said I'm not I don't I don't like living in this age it's filthy it's foul and I have every expectation that I'm going to spend what's left of my short life in jail if I lived in Canada or New York I'd already be there and she said don't worry we'd get you out I said for, to what end this is all I can do this is all I'm ever gonna do is preach I'm gonna go right back uh, so might as well leave me in there. That's going to be my new mission field until they kill me. Hence, I hate this age. I want to be right after that, be just boldly announced. And I have all my life, and I will continue to. Uh, but I'll end up in jail. And these are the people. That's why these people make mean so much to me personally, because I'm moved by them, as you can see. I'm moved by people with such great commitment to this. So they couldn't depose him. Here's a, today you can go into Czech Republic and find the, the place where he was executed. Um, so it was. So two groups emerged from Jan Hus, and that's the the. I, I practiced it, but uh, it's not ultra, but it's ultra, utraquists. It's a moderate wing of the Hussites. They desired freedom to take both the communion cup and the bread. That sounds normal, right? The Taborites, militant wing of the Hussites, who continued to struggle against the Roman Catholic Church. Wars left them destitute. And what emerged was the Unitas Fratrum, the unity of the brotherhood, the United Brethren Church, today called the Moravian Church. And that's still, a, and today we just call it Harvest Bible Church. Um, back to the Bible. So let's take a look at a quick summary, where we've been. The Western economy and the culture flourished in the high Middle Ages. A Christian philosophical movement called scholasticism sought to prove Christian doctrine through reason alone. And William of Ockham warned that there were fundamental limits to what reason can deduce about God. That's why I note him, because even though I love Anselm and Abelard was smart and Thomas Aquinas was wonderful, I'm on the William of Ockham side. Look, there are limits to reason, limits to how we can philosophize. It's about knowing God's word, believing God's word, which is to say, I believe God. I didn't say believe in God, believe God. Do you believe what God has said or do you not? I don't believe God said that, or he said that, I don't like it. I'm going to get that rid of, black that out in my Bible. I believe God, everything he said, word for word. The papal schism occurred causing questions in Christians' minds as to what the true authority for Christians should be. Christians like Wycliffe and Hus turned to the scripture and reason as the true authority. They translated Bibles into common languages so that everyone could read them. And so what we saw in the times of the church, early times of the church, was that authority was the revelation. The early days of the church. The early, those church fathers, revelation. The revelation of God that he has revealed through his, through his son, Jesus Christ. That word taken out by his apostles, eventually written down in scripture. The revelation of God. In the second century, Catholics added tradition as an authority. So the tradition of the church plus revelation. In the high Middle Ages, reason was also put on the throne. So you had revelation plus tradition plus reason. With Wycliffe and Huss, we see the beginnings of a rejection of tradition as an authority, thus the first rumblings of reform. So when we look at the evolution of Roman Catholic doctrine, some of this font is not going to be as big as you're accustomed to because I had a hard time getting it on my scales here. Most distinctive uh, Roman Catholic Church doctrines have their roots prior to the Middle Ages. 
uh, prior to the Middle Ages. A lot of these things that people, the Roman Catholics believe today uh, have just evolved through time. Uh, but they were solidified into Catholic dogma in or after the Middle Ages. So the first recorded prayer to Mary was in the, uh, the late 4th century, 379. Uh, Nestorianism was a reaction against calling Mary the mother of God. They were calling Mary the mother of God. You've got this reaction, Nestorianism was a reaction against that. There was the Feast of the Assumption of Mary that was instituted in the 5th century. So that's in the, in the late 400s. Uh, the Immaculate Conception, which, by the way, I always have to remind people, it has nothing to do with Jesus. The Immaculate Conception has to do with Mary, her Immaculate Conception. This became dogma in 1854, that Mary was born without sin. The Assumption of Mary that she ascended into heaven without dying became a dogma in 1950. You can see the, the evolution of that church. Purgatory. Uh, using 1 Corinthians three thirteen to 15, uh, saved as though through fire, is Paul's words, but they use their main passage, comes from the Apocrypha to support it, from 2 Maccabees 12, 44 to 45, where Judas Maccabeus, it says, for he had not hoped that they who were slain would rise again. It, if, if he had not hoped that they who were slain would rise again, it would not have been unnecessary to pray for the dead. It would have been unnecessary. Whereupon he made a reconciliation for the dead that they might be delivered from sin. So that's where purgatory comes from. That's the main text. Emphasized by Pope Gregory the Great, around 600. Formally proclaimed by the Council of Florence in 1274. Purgatory, 1274. Formally proclaimed. In early times, Christians used to remember the life and testimony of martyrs on the anniversary of their death. In the days of the Roman Empire, this changed into a notion that we can pray to the martyrs for help. We remember them. Hey, let's just pray to them. See what happens. I mean, after all, they died for their faith. And being in heaven there at Jesus' right hand, let's talk to them. Jesus is busy with the rest of the world. We'll talk to them. Maybe they can get through to Jesus. And if they don't help us out, we'll go straight to Mary. Mary's Jesus' mama. He'll always listen to his mama. That's, hey, that, that's not me making it up. St. Ambrose said the martyrs must be invoked who have washed away their sins by their own blood and may pray for our sins. We need not blush to use them as our intercessors for our weakness. I love Ambrose, uh, but I, I hate that doctrine. Just because Ambrose said it doesn't mean it's true. Uh, but smart people, when smart people say things, there's a lot of responsibility that goes with having influence, being an intelligent man or woman. And I think Ambrose missed it big time. Chrysostom said the martyrs have great boldness, for they bear the marks of martyrdom. When they show these, they persuade the king to do anything. Capitalized king. Jesus. In 1343, Pope Clement VI proclaimed that Jesus and his saints left a treasury of merit, like a bank account, that Christians could draw on. A person obtains a share of these by an indulgence, which was granted usually in exchange for some good work or a donation of money. We talked about this, so this is a review, but he's essentially saying those saints that went before us, some of them did so many good works, and they died before they could earn all of the, the power from those good works, and those are just kind of up in a bank account up in heaven. They're good works. If you want to draw on those good works, you give some money to the church, and you can have some of their good works. People not only preach this, people believed this. And I'll guarantee you, they're believing it today. All they got to do is be told by a priest or by the Pope that that's what's happening. Ambrose collected bones and two martyrs uh, of two martyrs and placed them under the altar to his church for protection. 
saying in Old Testament times when a dead man was thrown into Elisha's grave and the corpse touched Elisha's bones, the, the corpse came to life. And that's true in the Bible. That's happened way before and this probably factored into their decisions. Catholics support the idea of relics having power from verses like Acts 19, 11 to 12, which say that Paul touched the handkerchief or if Paul touched the handkerchief or apron, the handkerchief or apron could be taken to a sick person and they would be healed. Yeah, that's true, but Paul was an apostle. And God gave that during a time when the whole world was learning about Christ. By the time of Ambrose, the world knew about Christ. He didn't have to embellish anything. Pope Gregory, that would be the first, also called the Great, had a great chain he believed held the Apostle Paul, the ashes of the Apostle Paul. Sending some of the filings to his friend with bad eyesight, he said, let them continually be applied to your eyes, for many miracles have been wrought by this same gift. I would just get a little sand in my eyes. The Apostle Paul's ashes are not doing a whole lot of work for me here. But that's what they believed. Papal infallibility. Gregory VII declared the Pope and the church to be infallible. What year? 1075. Official doctrine today states that the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra, which means from the chair. Uh, no Pope has done that in many years, by the way. Number one proclamation that the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra. Notice how late that is. Number two proclamation that Mary ascended to heaven. Uh, remember, that's 1950. At the Council of Trent, by the way, the Council of Trent is the Counter-Reformation. As the Reformation came about, Catholics got together and said, let's, let's counter everything they're saying. Said that the Roman Catholic Church derived its doctrines from both the Bible and from tradition, and that it venerated both these sources with equal affection and reverence. It affirmed that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, which tradition is not. But tradition is a source of faith, they say, equal to the Bible, in that it is a true source, and that it imposes the assent of faith. The Bible is superior in dignity, but tradition is superior in completeness. Well, that sounds very good, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you read it that, you, you say a long enough paragraph and use enough good words, you're thinking, I tuned out like, like three sentences ago, but it sounds real smart, they must know what they're talking about. In a general Roman Catholics, in general, Roman Catholics are expected to accept the teaching authority of the Roman Church because it is a safe guide, even if it is not perfectly free from error, and because in critical areas of faith and morals, it will not fa fail them. There is no other guide to whom they can turn, and they are not personally responsible if they submit to the church, even when in a particular case, a position of the church could change. So they're not responsible. The church said to do this. We did it. We're not responsible if it's wrong. Can you live like that? I mean, I, I, I want to be right. Yes, because I'm, because I'm arrogant. I always want to have the right answer. But when it comes, concerns my eternal soul, I must be right. I have to be right. And as a teacher... I better make sure I'm right when I'm teaching the sheep, God's sheep, Christ's sheep. I, I'm standing in the place of Christ teaching God's word. I better be right. I need to be right. You need me to be right. My time is up. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time. At this place in the history of the church uh, where we live, may we be faithful. If we're a part of the, the writing of history, uh, may there be a, and there's a, a section, a faction that is faithful, may it be us. If you should so choose to use one of us to die for your faith or to become a, a famous person for being faithful, may we be up for the task. But at this point in church history, Lord, may we continue to rest on your word, to trust you. You know what you're doing. You are sovereign. May we believe you and place all of our trust in you. And may you bless us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 